Second Peter chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. They will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber in the opening chapter of second Peter. Peter reminds us of the knowledge of God and the scriptures of God, indicating that God has brought a message from God and words of God. In the second chapter, Peter will warn the people because with a right message will often come a wrong message with a true prophet will often come a false prophet. And with a right teacher will often come a wrong teacher. And so the chapters divided broadly into three sections. Number one, there's a description of their condemnation in verses one through nine. Number two, there is a description of their character in verses 10 through 16. And then there's a description of their false claims in verses 17 through 22. So the chapter basically exposes broadly the false teacher's identity and then the false teacher's iniquity. And so in the chapter, the false teacher isn't simply mistaken. They're not simply misled or misinformed. False teachers are make believers who profess to know the truth, but deliberately teach lies for the purpose of self-promotion and financial gain from their followers, according to verse three and according to verse 14. If you look in verse 14, it says having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They give themselves permission to live in sin in order to satisfy themselves in verse 10, in verse 13, in verse 14, in verse 18, in verse 19. According to Peter, the false teacher's ministry is based on deception in verses 1 and 3. They make a living out of distorting and twisting the scriptures. And so as we look at the text, we can ask ourselves the most simple and basic question. What does Peter warn? Well, he warns that false teachers will show up, that they'll ultimately be exposed, that they'll ultimately be judged by God and that they'll ultimately be condemned. But perhaps we need to ask other questions like, why does Peter warn us about these false teachers? Why does he warn us about false teaching? Why doesn't Peter in the second chapter just simply break out into a reiteration and commentary on Jesus's sermon on the Mount? Why doesn't he just talk about the love of God and why doesn't he talk about the love of Jesus? And why doesn't he just talk about that? You should love your neighbor as yourself. Why doesn't he say, look, when you have a chance and you come together, avoid heated theological debates. Why doesn't he Simply say something nice. Why does he use terms like false prophet, false teacher? And then he introduces the H word. Heresy and heretics. Is it possible that Peter's desire to warn the believer about false teachers and false doctrine is really an attempt, if you will, to bring us in part to fully 
and faithfully appreciate the person of Jesus and the worship of Jesus so that we can embrace him as Lord and embrace him as Savior? Does Peter think it's important to warn the saints about understanding Orthodox Christian beliefs or upholding the truth about the Lord Jesus and challenging aberrant theology so that we can hope to present the truth to those who find themselves inside historical biblical Christianity, but also to provide a basis to speak to those who are outside historical biblical Christianity. Jesus told us to love our friends and our foes. But I'm going to suggest something to you. That perhaps one of the most loving things that you could ever, ever do is to warn someone about false teachers and false teaching, especially when they present a false Jesus that incorporates a false gospel that leads down the practical path and the spiritual path of destruction. What selfish neighbor would stand and watch a pyromaniac with accelerants? light their neighbor's house on fire and refuse to warn them? What wicked neighbor would watch the house burn and refuse to flee the premises? What decent neighbor watching a child's room go up and smoke and fire would refuse to put themselves at risk and try to save the child? As a matter of fact, Jude tells us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered in his little epistle in Jude 3. And we're not tasked with attacking the unbeliever or the make-believer. But we are employed to put people to attention. You know, some people reading this particular passage might envision people in black robes with hoods as they attempt to incarcerate, imprison, and otherwise bring about a second inquisition. But that's not what Peter is doing. Peter is setting the record straight about Jesus and about sin and about salvation. As a matter of fact, he begins with false teachers having always been among us. Look again at verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now, where did these false prophets come from? Peter points out in the Old Testament, they rose up from among the people in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses one through five. As a matter of fact, over and over again in the scriptures, the moment that God gives a true revelation, there's someone who will come along and impose the revelation. The moment that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, there will be someone who will say, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, false teachers often begin life as orthodox teachers from when, within the ranks of the church. With God's revelation of himself to mankind comes those who will attack and contradict and dismiss and distort the revelation. The false prophet and the false teacher, listen carefully, are not defined in terms of agreement or disagreement with Peter. Peter doesn't say everyone who agrees with me is a true prophet and everyone who disagrees with me is a false prophet. And so we can rightly say that it isn't everyone who agrees with Gino and everyone who disagrees with Gino is a is a false prophet. The false prophet, the false teacher is the person who radically, moderately, subtly departs from the revelation of God in the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. The false teacher broadly denies the revelation of God and denies the specific facts of the person and the work of Jesus in the Bible. It is the false teacher who denies essential biblical Christianity. There's a wonderful little booklet out that's published by Rose Publishing that's been um, 
been made by Dr. Norman Geisler, who we had here. It's called Essential Doctrines Made Easy. And I really like it because in this particular little little booklet, he'll basically go through the essentials and he'll talk about what it is that we need to believe when he comes to the portion called Jesus's atoning death. He says, what do I actually need to believe? And he says, only Christ's sinless, sacrificial death and bodily resurrection can bring us to God. And then he says, what's at stake? And that's an important part of any discussion of essential Christianity here, he says, It's the unique nature of what Jesus has done for our salvation. As a matter of fact, just a very quick outline. He says, what are the essential doctrines? Well, the essential doctrines of Christianity have to do with who God is, who Jesus Christ is, God's love for people and God's desire to save them. And then he lists 14 essential salvation doctrines that have to be true in order for anyone to know God and be saved. He talks about God's unity and God's triunity, human depravity, Jesus's virgin birth, Christ's sinlessness, Christ's deity, Christ's humanity, the necessity of God's grace, the necessity of faith, Jesus's atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his bodily ascension, his intercession in heaven, his second coming. And then he adds two more essentials that I think are important and even essential. He talks about the inspiration of scripture, but then he also talks about the method of interpretation. And so both Peter and Paul were aware of the danger of false teachers and false teaching. Paul reiterates what Peter is saying in first Timothy chapter four, verse one, where he says, now the spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Recent editions of J. Gordon Melton's Encyclopedia of American Religions list some 2,300 religious groups active in the United States. Most of them have at least 2,000 members or operate in multiple widely separated geographic locations in order to qualify to be included in this particular book. During the 20th century, prior to 1990, the popularity of Historical biblical Christianity was somewhat stable, but as the years continued, the numbers declined dramatically as about as a matter of fact, about 87 percent of adults identified themselves as Christians, but not everyone who identifies themselves as a Christian is a Christian. The country then experienced a major change. Significant numbers of American adults began to disaffiliate themselves from Christianity. They began to abandon what they saw was organized religion. By 2008, the percentage of Christians had reached 76 percent and is believed to be declining and continuing to decline. Dr. Joseph Parker, over a century ago, commented in the last 30 years, I have seen enough dead theories and discarded hypotheses to fill a good sized cemetery. Well, guess what? The discarded hypotheses and the dead theories continue to grow. It was Rudyard Kipling who wrote a long time ago. The craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. But why is that so funny? It's because guess what? Peter was right at the moment that truth was introduced. So was false doctrine. As a matter of fact, I can almost guarantee you in the not too distant future, someone is going to ask you the following question. Why are there so many religions? Why are there so many different denominations? 
Why are there so many different belief systems? And you may be tempted to answer that question in a specific way. You might even be tempted to say, I don't know the answer to that question. But I would encourage you to embrace what the Bible says about the answer to that question. I would encourage you to take to heart what Peter is saying and say, Guess what? Since the very beginning that truth was revealed, so was error. There's a reason why there are so many different things, because what the Bible says, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. With good doctrine comes bad doctrine. With truth comes error. At the end of verse one, look what it says. He he talks about what false teachers do. They promote false teaching who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, false teachers, according to Peter, they love secrecy. They love hypocrisy, but they also pretend to be true teachers. And perhaps they might even retain some things that are true, but they quickly add those things which are false. But Peter gives the reason in order to further their own agenda. I want to draw your attention at the end of the verse to a specific expression. Look where it says, who will secretly bring in. In the original language, this is all one word in the Greek text. It's a double compound. Ego, lead or to bring. Ice, turn into or in. Para, beside. So the whole phrase came to mean to smuggle, to secretly introduce. We might even say false teachers smuggle in destructive teaching like a slow acting or a fast acting poison. Those of you who are familiar with law enforcement know why people smuggle. They smuggle something because it is either immoral or illegal. And so they do it under the radar. Peter's point is that the false teacher in their false teaching smuggle in poison that perverts, distorts essential teachings like grace, like the deity of Christ. As a matter of fact, the moment that the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, there's going to be someone who will say, no, he didn't. The moment a person says, only the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, make no mistake, someone's going to come along and say, there is no God. So if a person says, there is no God, or at least not the way that the Bible represents the, the God of the Bible. Typically, when I ask my atheist friends, well, let's be clear about which God it is that you don't believe in. I don't believe in any God. Really? No, God. Do you not believe in the God of the Bible, the one who is self-existent, omnipresent, omniscient? Is that the God that you don't believe in? That's right. I don't believe in that God. And you don't believe that you are God. That's correct. So you don't believe you're omniscient, omnipresent and all knowing. Correct. So since you don't know everything about everything, is it possible that something could be introduced to you that would cause you to change your mind? You've already conceded you're not God. You've conceded that such information might exist. Is it possible that there might be evidence that there is a God? Possibly. Then you're no longer an atheist. You've just abandoned your position and you've moved towards agnosticism. Now, think about this for just a moment. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there are people who are willing to dispute whether or not there is a God. They're willing to dispute whether or not Jesus is God. They're willing to dispute whether or not you're saved by grace. They're willing to dispute all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. 
But the net effect of all of those reasons become you remain in darkness. You abandon the light. You're still in your sin. But what they'll typically do is just simply pretend like there is no such thing as sin. And so the expression destructive heresies is blunt and hard. This is the expression that Peter uses. Destructive heresies. The word apoloia is what scholars call in the genitive case. The noun is correctly translated of destruction. And so here, when he says bring in destructive heresies, he's talking about the consequences of false belief. And it's something that you've always known, that you've intuitively known. You may have been found it difficult to articulate, but you've always known, you've always known in your heart that what you believe affects the way you act and what you do. You know that misinformation hurts people. You know that. Something inside of your heart knows that when a bottle is labeled poison, you don't put it in the baby's bottle. You know that's wrong. You know that there are consequences. For believing things that aren't true. By the way, he then says, haresis. It's a cognate, heresy. The word in its noun form meant a choice or to choose. In the ancient world of, of ancient cultures and ancient languages, it came to mean that which is chosen. And it came to eventually mean a peculiar opinion. A different idea. In other words, the word came to mean something specifically that was an opinion or an idea that came to mean something that's different from what was accepted. And by the way, that's the way it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19 and Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. My friend Robert Bowman, he narrows the sense down heresies. To, quote, a teaching which directly opposes the essentials of historical Christian faith so that true Christians are forced to divide themselves from those who hold it. And so for the person who says, I'm a Christian. And they say, I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't really believe in God, though. Okay, you're a Christian who doesn't believe in God. Well, what kind of a Christian are you? I'm a cultural Christian who embraces the cultural consequences of living in a culture and a society where this is widely accepted. But that's not what I accept. Well, then why do you call yourself a Christian? Because I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not a Jew. Really? And what other kind of a Christian are you? I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't believe that Jesus was supernaturally introduced to the planet Earth. I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't believe in miracles. I'm the kind of Christian <clears throat> that believes that Jesus was a good guy, maybe even the best guy. And he was misunderstood and they killed him. I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't believe he really rose from the dead. I'm the kind of Christian that doesn't really believe that he can save you from your sin. And now what you've effectively done is you've completely eviscerated the word Christian. It becomes a meaningless word. In the Greek New Testament, where it says who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Peter uses a strange word. Usually the word Lord is translated Kyrios almost exclusively in the New Testament. Whenever you see the word Lord, it is that word. But here Peter uses a stark and a dramatic word. It's the word despotes from which we have an acquired term. We use the term despot in our culture and society and language. We use it. To refer to a tyrant who has absolute control. By the way, this Greek noun is applied to Jesus Christ as Lord only here. And in Jude chapter 4, where it accompanies the word kyrios, 
The word in the ancient culture was used to describe a human being who had complete authority and control. People lived because he allowed them to live and people died because he allowed them to die. The word that Peter used isn't of an absolute tyrant who's abusing his authority, but rather of a perfect monarch with unlimited authority. That's what Peter means when he uses this term, a perfect monarch incapable of abusing his authority, but he also has complete authority. And so Peter rightly describes himself as the slave to this absolute master. Peter describes himself as the slave and Jesus as the master. Paul describes himself as a bondservant and a slave to Jesus Christ, the master. John describes himself as a slave and a bondservant to Jesus Christ, his master. Since Peter, James, John, Paul all refer to themselves as slaves and Jesus as the master, Peter's point and even bringing out the subject of false teachers and false teaching begins with this. That the source of separation isn't you don't agree with me, but rather you refuse to submit to the lordship and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, Jesus spoke and the universe existed. Paul writes in Colossians that all of reality exists because Jesus allows it to exist, that he's the image of the invisible God. When the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the New Testament writers interpret that to mean that this is Jesus and this same Jesus is the one who rebuked disease. This is the Jesus who calmed the storm. This is the Jesus who confronted demons and they fled. This is the Jesus who had the power over death itself. This is the Jesus who could speak to a rotting, decomposing corpse and just simply say the words, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes back to life. Since Jesus is the Lord of reality, And since Jesus is the Lord of the universe and since Jesus is the Lord over all of humanity, doesn't it make sense that he's also the Lord of the truth? So that when Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth. When Jesus says, no one comes to to the father except through me. You would think that Peter would use the terms of universal sovereignty, omnipotence and power. But Peter's passing reference immediately makes Jesus accessible. Look what it says. Peter says, (laughs) denying the Lord who who bought them. His reference is. To a sacrifice. Even denying the Lord who bought them. You you, you know, modern apologists might be tempted to change the word bought to taught. Denying the Lord who taught them. Don't get me wrong what Jesus said. Everything that he said and everything that he did was true. But he says the Lord who bought them. My daughter-in-law backstage when we were praying and preparing for this service She was talking about how easy it is for one little letter to change the whole meaning. She said, there's a song, Jesus, that that we sing, no one like you. There's no one like you. Now, imagine you add just one tiny letter, an S. No one likes you. The whole meaning is undermined and, 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 and there's a difference that's being made. Jesus bought us. In what way did Jesus purchase 
human beings by his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. The New Testament says he shed his blood. The sacrifice of Jesus was in part accomplished to purchase us out of the marketplace of depravity and sin and slavery. And the Bible refers to this transaction in at least two ways. The Bible says he bought us with his blood and the Bible says that he gave himself for us. Both expressions refer to the same biblical fact. Look what Peter does. It's Jesus's lordship is based on Jesus's sacrifice. And slaves are purchased and the previous master has no more claim. Free men are not sold into slavery. They pass from master to master. But our kinsman redeemer, our brother, has bought us out of sin and guilt and bondage and condemnation and tyranny to our own lust and our own passion from the slavery of human criticism and man's opinion, from the dominion of evil and darkness and Jesus. Jesus does this to set us free. Do you understand what what Peter is doing? Peter isn't characterizing the false teacher first and foremost as a wicked opponent that we confront. But as a fugitive running from God's light and God's Love running from Jesus, running from his sacrifice, running from his love, running from his purchase. Peter knows that we're at best stewards entrusted with our master's wealth. And what Jesus has entrusted us with is a true message of hope and love and forgiveness and redemption. And there are people who will say there's no hope and there's no redemption and there's no forgiveness. But doesn't the master have the right to direct his servants? Doesn't the master have the right to speak clearly and authoritatively on all issues that involve the truth? And Peter points out. And many will follow their destructive ways. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. False teachers aren't just simply false teachers. They're fugitives and dark, isolated. They're fugitives. They're running away. They're fugitives who deny the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand why false teachers are false teachers. The reason why they are not loyal to Jesus's teachings is because they're not loyal to Jesus. That's the point. The word translated destructive ways here is actually different than in the first verse. It's the word oselegia. It's in the plural. It means licentiousness. It means sensuality. It means extreme debauchery. When he says, and many will follow their destructive ways, he is speaking about gross, immoral behavior. In other words, these are people who decide to do what they want to do quite apart from the person and the purity of Jesus. And so. Peter doesn't give us a dirty laundry list of their wicked and evil teachings. But rather their behavior. And he says many will follow their destructive ways. How many? 
If the presence of the culture, any indication, there's a whole lot. I'll bet you each and every one of you have at least one person in your life who's been involved with something that doesn't include historical biblical Christianity. Many of you have family members who are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Many of you have family members who grew up with Christian science. Many of you have family and friends who grew up in a world where historical biblical Christianity was denied. And the person of Jesus was denied and salvation by grace alone was denied. And for whatever reason that I don't always understand, they follow their destructive ways. By the way, when you read Peter's words and many will follow their destructive ways. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter is presenting us with something that we have to really consider. And that is that all sin is really, in effect, a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ and the right of Jesus to rule in the life of the individual. When we had our Christmas Eve service, you'll remember we told the story from Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men showing up at the birth of Jesus. And there was Herod. And remember, Herod says to the wise men, when you find him, let me know so that I can worship him as well. But remember, it was a lie. It wasn't the truth. He didn't want to find the child in order to crown him the king. He wanted to discover who the child is so that he could kill him and remain ruler of his own heart and his own life. And there was no depth of wickedness that he wasn't willing to embrace. As a matter of fact, remember when he inquired of the wise men when the star appeared Later on in the chapter, we discover that he orders his soldiers to murder every single child under the age of two. We know that killing is wrong. But there's something awful. There's something perverse. There's something dark and wicked with a person who would kill the most innocent and the most vulnerable in order to keep their own selfish ambitions alive. And I think that there's a clue that's given to us. There's a reason why so many people follow their destructive ways is because there's something inside of the heart of humans that rebel against the lordship and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It began with Herod, but it continued with the religious rulers. Remember, when we get to the end of the ministry of Jesus, they scream in one accord. We will not have this man reign over us. Well, then what do you want us to do with him? Crucify him. By the way, that's the bottom of all false doctrine. Every wrong, wicked, perverse idea finds its foundation in an unwillingness to allow Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior. And so Peter reminds us that following false teachers and false teaching causes the way of truth to be spoken of in terms of evil Peter used a a very strong word. It's blasphemeo. It means literally to speak ill of or to speak wickedly. Peter states in, in no uncertain terms that people who promote false teaching cause the gospel to be maligned, to be brought into reproach because the world is watching. Richard DeHaan notes when those who claim to be Christians provide convenient excuses for evil behavior by their teaching and by their example, they're actually giving occasion for Satan's cohorts to slander or blaspheme the cause of Christ. 
In what other ways do cults and false teachers and false gospels defame, slander and misrepresent biblical Christianity? The the whole point is that the false teacher will quote scripture in order to find ways to diminish the deity of Jesus, to exalt humanity, to redefine salvation as belief in Jesus. But remember, this belief in Jesus is a diminished Jesus. Plus a misplaced confidence in anything other than the grace of God and the cross of Calvary. Why? Because false teachers and false religions. In the end, provide a false peace and a false forgiveness and false hope and false salvation and false Joy, how can watered down versions of Christianity who deny Jesus and salvation by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone can never provide what people really need? Hope. Forgiveness. Life. A future. And so when people in the world see a person who passes themselves off as a Christian and who passes themselves their teaching off as Christian teaching. And they say. Then why is there a conspicuous lack of joy in your life and why is there a conspicuous lack of peace in your life and how is it that you live and love all of the things that people who are lost live for and love? When people in the world watch what passes as Christian TV, teaching on so-called Christian TV and on so-called Christian radio, when they see church leaders and church goers live the same level of immorality as the most corrupt politician, as the most immoral movie star, when celebrity Christians are in many ways no different from the celebrity Christian, then how is it possible that we could leave them with any other impression than that there's something wrong with Christianity? No wonder heretics and their teaching give cause for the cross of Christ and the gospel of Jesus to be whispered as silly superstition and ridiculous religion. We live in a culture and a society that if you string the words together, I believe the Bible is true. The very first thought in the world in which we live is then you must be a complete idiot. Then you must be a mindless fanatic. And so some people reading this passage of Scripture might see us as self-appointed keepers of truth, robed guardians, the keepers of orthodoxy, burning dissenters at the stake. Then you'd miss the whole point of Peter's passage. Peter has absolutely no desire for you to agree with him. What Peter's primary desire is for you to know and love and believe and experience the hope that only Jesus can provide. That's why Peter refers to the gospel as the way of truth. Not a way of truth, but the way of truth. It's the gospel that's the way of truth. It was Blaise Pascal, the very famous French philosopher who wrote, those who do not love truth excuse themselves on the grounds that it is disputed and that very many people deny it. It's true. A lot of people can say, well, that's your truth. That's not the truth. But the fact that doctrine is under dispute doesn't mean that truth can't be known or that truth can't be found. By the way, the word orthodoxy has come to have almost a negative, even wicked connotation. But let's put the word back in its proper place. The word orthodoxy doesn't have to be scary. The word orthodoxy just simply means believing what's right. Believing the truth. You know, for many people, the word means believing the majority. But the majority aren't always right. The Bible's always right. 
The message of Jesus is always right. By covetousness, it says they will exploit you with deceptive words. By the way, the word translated exploit first meant to travel. By covetousness, they will exploit you. It meant to travel for business or trade. It meant to go on a journey and you would transact uh, business. But here it comes to mean to make merchandise or exploit for profit. We even have a kind of an expression in the English language that makes exactly the same kind of sense. Has anyone ever said to you, hey, he took you for a ride? That's what this means. They drive you to a place and then they empty your pockets. I've actually seen a so-called Christian on TV make an appeal for money. And he said, you know what I'm going to do with your money? He said, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Oh, it's right. He goes, I'm going to take your money and I'm going to put it in my pocket in order to use it for what I want to use it for. And you know what the people did? They laughed and they cheered. You see, it's one thing to take advantage of someone. And it's another thing to take advantage of someone and they love you for it. Abuse me. Use me. Take advantage of me. By covetousness, they will exploit you. That's what it says. And the word deceptive, again, it only appears here in the Greek New Testament. It's the word, and you're going to know this word, plastos. We get the word plastic from it. The word first meant to make a form or to make a mold. It was a word that you would use to describe dyes as you would make ancient coins in the ancient world. It then came to mean fabricated. But eventually, depending on its usage, it meant something that you made up. Fabricated. In other words, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. The idea being they just simply make it up. I know what some of you are thinking. No one would make up things about God just to take advantage of you, would they? I mean, no one would say they heard from God when they really haven't heard from God, would they? Would a person say, I saw an angel when in fact they never saw an angel? Would they then repeat the angel's words if it never happened? People wouldn't do something like that, would they? Peter says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Sometimes they're outright lies. Sometimes they're subtle lies. Sometimes they're almost truth and sometimes they're half truth and sometimes they're not truth at all. But what does one tenth of a lie And 50% of a lie and 75% of a lie all have in common. They're all lies. You know, years ago, James Sire wrote a wonderful book called Scripture Twisting. 20 ways the cults misread the Bible. If you ever have a chance, I would encourage you to pick it up. I'd also recommend another book by my friend Wayne House and Gordon Carl. They wrote a book called Doctrine twisting and the book is devoted how core biblical truths are misrepresented and distorted. If ever there was a time for you to maybe take a class on biblical hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation, if you've ever wanted to know about the truth, I would encourage you take another look at. Horizon Bible College. Take another look at some venues that that offer you the ability to learn how to think and read the Bible in a way that honors God. And look at how he ends the verse for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. What does Peter mean when he looks into the future of the false teacher and he uses the term destruction, the basic meaning is false teachers may seem like they're getting away with it, but they won't get away with it. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. The word destruction in the ancient world would often be used to describe something that was rendered incapable of doing what it's supposed to do. 
As a matter of fact, in the army, if you could cut the tendon of a horse's ankle, rendering the horse useless for battle, you effectively take it out of the battle. What a person believes about Jesus and what a person believes about salvation has consequences. And so Peter reminds you of what you've always known and what you really have always known in your heart. That ideas have consequences. Peter pulls no punches. He spares no feelings. He sees the false teachers and their false teaching as a threat to the church and as a threat to Christ's body. For the person who promotes a lie and the person who accepts the lie. The consequences are we remain misled and deceived. You know, someone might say, well, wait a minute, I believe in God, but belief in God isn't necessarily what Peter is looking for. Remember, James will elsewhere write. Demons believe and tremble. Religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs are not simply philosophical inquiries designed to arouse curiosity and stimulate intellectual discussion. It's about life and love and destiny. These are so important because you were made by God and designed by God to be loved and to be forgiven and redeemed. Jesus is the only solution to the problem of sin. Peter pleads, beware. False teachers and false doctrine. By the way, how do you recognize the false teacher? Peter just simply says, I need you to do two things. Listen to what they say. And watch the way they live. And that should provide enough information for you to begin a serious inquiry. By the way, the false teachers will be destroyed and Peter will list a series of Old Testament illustrations to prove that point. But that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace and mercy. We thank you for light and love. Lord, it doesn't make sense for us to join the fugitives. It makes no sense to run away from light. It makes no sense to run away from true spiritual freedom. It makes no sense to run away from from forgiveness and love. And so, Lord, I pray that as you prepare our hearts. That, Lord, we would. Be open and willing to listen carefully to to Peter's warning. And that when we find friends and family who are on the lamb, who are running from love and who are running from light and who are running from forgiveness. That, Lord, we would remember what Peter told us. That they're willing to deny the Lord who bought us, redeemed us, purchased us out of the marketplace of sin and rebellion. It need not end badly. And so, Lord, we pray that you, we could be used by you to point them in a direction of love and salvation, redemption and hope for Jesus' sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.